Chapter 15 of The Goddess of Atvatabar by William Richard Bradshaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. Our reception by the king. The sacred locomotive swept through a noble archway into a palace garden, a part of the king's palace in Kalmgur. The railway terminal was a wide marble platform or causeway surrounded by a sea of tropical flowers. The priests had already alighted and stood in double file to receive us. Through a sculptured archway a herald approached us, blowing a trumpet and announcing the coming of His Royal Majesty King Almegri Bulmaka Arvatvatvar. We alighted, and I had the sailors drawn up in an imposing column on the platform, every man grasping his sword. Even the remotest walls of the garden were lined with wayleels, and military music added to the splendour of the scene. Presently a stately figure approached us. It was His Majesty, accompanied by Her Majesty, Queen Toplissy. Kosh nearly whispered that it was a special honour that the King and Queen should greet us even before we entered the palace. The King was tall and erect in bearing, and his complexion was the colour of old gold. His hair, as well as his closely trimmed beard and moustache, were of a serpent green tint. He wore a dome-shaped crown of gold, surmounted by a blazing ruby. His dress was a cloth of gold, light as gossamer, that swathed his form after the manner of our eastern potentates. His boots of gold-lacquered leather were covered with emeralds and curiously turned up at the toes. Queen Toplissy was a handsome lady, rather heavy in physique, of an orange-yellow complexion, with bright copper-bronze hair, and her unclad arms wore a profusion of bracelets and armlets of various metals. Her crown was also of gold, surmounted by a blazing sapphire. Her robes were of white silk, embroidered with broad bands of orange and arranged in innumerable folds. Her boots were encrusted with sapphires. All this I saw at a momentary glance as Kosh nearly led me forward to His Majesty. I was announced as His Excellency Lexington White, Commander of the Polar King, Discoverer of the Polar Gulf, and the first inhabitant of the outer world who ever reached Bimbisarol and Atvatabar. The King embraced me and I kissed the hand of Her Majesty. The officers and sailors received their due share of royal attention. We were the objects of unbounded curiosity on the part of the royal retinue. Amid a salute of guns and music, we passed through the archway that formed the boundary between the palace gardens and the court of the Holy Locomotive, and saw the palace of King Aldmigeri Bulmaka before us. It was a high, conical building, twenty stories in height. Each story was surrounded by a row of windows decorated with pillars. Colossal lions of gold stood on the entrance towers, their claws formed of straps of gold running down the walls and riveted to the lower tiers of stone, giving the impression that they held together the whole structure beneath. The style of architecture was an absolutely new order. It was neither Hindu, Egyptian, Greek nor Gothic, but there was a flavour of all four styles in the weirdly carved circular walls and roofs. The palace was surrounded by a spacious court enclosed by cloistered walls. Flowers bloomed in immense square-shaped vases of stone, supported on diminutive square pillars. A tank of crystal water, on each side of which broad wide steps led down into the cool wave, lay in the centre of the court. The tank was fed by a wide rivulet of rippling water that ran along a chiselled bed in the marble floor of the court. The entire scene was a picture of glorious and blessed repose. The sculptor had covered the base and frieze of the walls with a profusion of ornament in high relief. Imagine an art had produced scenes that created a profound impression. A dramatic calmness held lion and elephant, serpent and eagle, whale and bokakid, youth and maiden, in glorious embrace. 
The banquet given by the king in our honour in the topmost story of the palace was both delicious and satisfying. All the fertility of Akbatbar ministered to our delight. Strange meats and fruits were music to the body, as art and music were meats and wine to the soul. I sat beside his majesty at the feast, while Koshnili sat at my right hand. Admiral Jolnar sat beside the queen, and on her majesty's right sat Captain Wallace. The professors and other officers, as well as a number of noblemen and state officers, also sat at the royal table. At another table sat the sailors, accompanied by the officers of the king's household. We had again an opportunity of tasting the squang of that vat bar, which was of a finer brand than that served at the table of Governor Laldemir. It added a new joy to life to taste such royal wine. His Majesty, seated on his throne at the feast, raised a glass of squang and said, I drink in welcome to our illustrious guests, His Excellency Lexington White, commander of the Polar King and discoverer of Atvatbar. The company, rising, shouted, Welcome to His Excellency Lexington White, commander of the Polar King, and drank of their glasses in my honour. In acknowledgement of this great compliment, I rose and proposed the healths of the King and Queen. I said, I drink to the healths of their Royal Majesties King Algmarie Bumaka and Queen Toplissi of Atvatbar, to whom be lifelong peace and prosperity. The company honoured this sentiment by acclamation and drinking goblets of wine. This constituted the preliminaries of our interview. Now, said His Majesty, we are extremely anxious to learn all about the manners and customs of the people of the outer world. Tell us of these people, their laws, religions and modes of government. In obedience to the king's request, I spoke of America and its nations founded on the idea of self-sovereignty and of Europe with its sovereigns and subjects. I spoke of Egypt and India as types of a colossal past, of the United States and Great Britain as types of a colossal present, and of Africa, the continent of the colossal future. I informed the king that the genius of Asia of the Eastern world ran to poetry and art without science, while that of the Western world developed science and invention without poetry and art. Ah, cried the king, who was intensely interested. At Vatbar has both science and art, invention and poetry. Our wise rulers have ever been mindful of the equal charms of science and sentiment in educating our people. I assured his majesty that we were no less anxious to learn all about the institutions of Atvatbar than he was regarding the external sphere. Atvatbar, said the king, is a monarchy formed on the will of the people. While the throne is inalienably secured to the king for life, the government is vested in a legislative chamber called the Barodomy. This legislative assembly is also our house of nobles, consisting of one thousand members divided into three classes. To be once elected to the Barodomy entitles the representative to receive the title of Byroon for life. Only at the expiration of five years, the term of each assembly, a member, if again elected, receives the title of Jangoon. If elected again, the highest title is Golnor. No one can be elected more than three times, and Golnor is a title which but few attain, owing to the limited number of legislators who are three times elected to the Barodomy. The president of the assembly is always a Golnor, as only a member of the highest caste is nominated for the presidency. He is also chief minister of state. His council, which is the government, includes the chief officer of each branch of government, as well as a royal representative. Thus, Advatbar is an absolute democracy, ornamented and ruled by those men whom a generous nation loves to honour for distinguished merit employed in the public service. End of chapter 15